the Red Queen. The Apatosaurus had come down to the river in the heat of the day. Their graceful curving necks were reflected in the water as they bent to drink. Their long whip-like tail swung back and forth lazily. Several younger Apatosaurus, much smaller than the adults, scampered about in the centre of the herd. Beautiful, isn't it? Levine said. The way it all fits together are just beautiful. He leaned over the side to shout to Thorn. Where's my mount? Coming up, Thorn said. The rope now brought up a heavy wide base tripod and a circular mount on top. There was five video cameras atop the mount and dangling wires leading to solar panels. Levine and Malcolm began to set up. What happens to the video? Arby said. Our data gets multiplexed and we uplink it to back to California by satellite. We'll also hook into the security network, so we'll have lots of observation points. And we don't have to be here? Right. And this is what you call a high hide? Yes, at least that's what the scientists like Sarah Harlan call it. Thorne climbed up to join them. The little shelter was now quite crowded, but Levine didn't seem to notice. He was entirely focused on the dinosaurs. He turned a pair of binoculars on the animals spread across the plain. Just as we thought, he said to Malcolm, special organization, infants and juveniles in the center of the herd, protective adults on the periphery. The Apatosaurus used their tails as defense. Well, that's, that's the way it looks. Oh, there's no question about it, Levine said. He sighed. It's uh, so agreeable to be proven right. On the ground below, Eddie unpacked the circular aluminium cage, the same one they'd seen in California. It was six feet tall and four feet in diameter, constructed of one-inch titanium bars. Well, 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 what do you want me to do with this? Eddie said. Leave it down there, Levine said. That's where it belongs. Eddie set the cage upright in the corner of the scaffolding. Levine climbed down. And what's that for? Arby said, looking down. Catching a dinosaur? In point of fact, just the opposite. Levine clipped the cage onto the side of the scaffolding. He swung the door open and shut, testing it. There was a lock in the door. He checked the lock too, leaving the key in place with its dangling elastic loop. It's a predator cage, just like a shark cage, Levine said. If you're down here walking around and anything happens, you can climb in here and you'll be safe. In case what happens? Arby said with a worried look. Actually, I don't think anything will happen, Levine said, climbing back up. Because I doubt the animals will pay any attention to us, or to this little house, once the structure has been concealed. You mean they won't see it? Oh, well, they'll see it, Levine said, but they'll ignore it. But, but if they smell us, Levine shook his head. We sullied the hides of the prevailing winds as toward us, and you may have noticed the ferns of distinct smell. It was a mild, slightly tangy odour, almost like eucalyptus. Arby fretted. But, uh, suppose they decide to eat the ferns? They won't, Levine said. These are Dicranaptius cyathioids. They are mildly toxic and cause a rash in the mouth. In point of fact, there's a theory that the toxicity first evolved back in the Jurassic as a defense against dinosaur browsers. That's not a theory, Malcolm said. It's just an idle speculation. There's some logic behind it, Levine said. Plant life in the Mesozoic must have been severely challenged by the arrival of very large dinosaurs, herds of giant herbivores. Each animal consuming hundreds of pounds of plant matter each day would have wiped out any plants that didn't evolve some defense. A bad taste or nettles or thorns or chemical toxicity. 
so perhaps the aphioids evolved its toxicity back then. And it's very effective, because contemporary animals don't eat these ferns anywhere on Earth. Well, that's why they're so abundant. You may have noticed. Plants have defenses, Kelly said. Of course they do. Plants evolve like every other form of life, and they have come up with their own forms of aggression, defense, and so on. In the 19th century, most theories concerned animals, nature reading tooth and claw and all that. But now scientists are thinking that nature green in root and stem. We realize that plants, in their uh, ceaseless struggle to survive, have evolved everything from complex symbiosis with other animals, to signaling mechanisms to warn other plants, to outright chemical warfare. Kelly frowned. Signaling? Like what? Oh, there are many examples, Levine said. In Africa, acacia trees evolved very long, sharp thorns, three inches or so. But that only provoked animals like giraffes and antelope to evolve long tongues to get past the thorns. Thorns alone didn't work. So in the evolutionary arms race, the acacia trees next evolved toxicity. They started to produce large quantities of tannin in their leaves, which sets off a lethal metabolic reaction in the animal that eats them. Literally kills them. At the same time, the acacias also evolved a kind of chemical warning system among themselves. If an antelope begins to eat one tree in a grove, that tree releases the chemical ethylene into the air, which causes other trees in the grove to step up the production of leaf tannin. Within five or ten minutes, the other trees are producing more tannin, making themselves poisonous. And then what happens to the antelope? He dies? Well, not anymore. Levine said, because the evolutionary arms race continued. Eventually, antelopes learned that they could only browse for a short time. Once the tree started to produce more tannin, they had to stop eating it. And the browsers developed new strategies. For example, when a giraffe eats an acacia tree, it then avoids all the trees downwind. Instead, it moves to another tree that is some distance away. So the animals have adapted to this defense too. In uh, evolutionary theory, this is called the Red Queen phenomenon, Malcolm said, because in Alice in Wonderland, the Red Queen tells Alice that she has to run as fast as she can just to stay where she is. That's the way evolutionary spirals seem. All of the organisms are evolving at a furious pace just to stay in the same balance, to stay where they are. Arby said, and this is common even with plants? Oh, yes, Levine said. In their own way, plants are extremely active. Oak trees, for example, produce tannin and phenol as a defense when caterpillars attack them. A whole grove of trees is alerted as soon as one tree is infested. It's a way of protecting the entire growth, a kind of cooperation among trees, you might say. Arby nodded and looked out of the high hide at the apatosaurs still by the river below. So, Arby said, is that why all the dinosaurs haven't eaten all the trees off this island? Because those big apatosaurs must eat a lot of plants. They have long necks to eat the high leaves, but the trees hardly look touched. Very good, Levine said, nodding. I noticed that myself. Is that because of all these plants' defenses? Well, it might be, Levine said, but I think there is a very simple explanation for why the trees are preserved. What's that? Just look, Levine said. It's right before your very eyes. Arby picked up the binoculars and stared at the herds. What's the simple explanation? Among paleontologists, Levine said, there's been an interminable debate why sauropods have long necks. Those animals you see there have necks 20 feet long. The additional belief is that the sauropods evolved long necks to eat the high foliage. 
that could not be touched by smaller animals. So, Arby said, what's the debate? Well, most animals on this planet have short necks, Levine said, because a long neck is, well, a pain in the neck. It causes all sorts of problems. Structural problems, how to arrange muscles and ligaments to support a long neck. Behavioural problems, nerve impulses must travel a long way from the brain to the body. Swallowing problems, food has to go a long way from the mouth to the stomach. Breathing problems, it has to be pulled down a long windpipe. Cardiac problems, blood has to be pumped way up to the head or the animal faints. In evolutionary terms, all this is very difficult to do. But giraffes do it, Arby said. Yes, I do, although giraffe necks are nowhere near as long. Giraffes have evolved large hearts and very thick fessier around the neck. In effect, the neck of a giraffe is like a blood pressure cuff, going all the way up. Do dinosaurs have the same cuff? We don't know. We assume that apatosaurs have huge hearts, perhaps 300 pounds or more. But there is another possible solution to the problem of pumping blood in a long neck. Yes? You're looking right at it now, Levine said. Arby claps his hands. They don't raise their necks! Correct, Levine said. At least not very often, or for long periods. Of course, right now the animals are drinking, so their necks are down. But my guess is if we watch them for an extended period, we'll find that they don't spend much time with their necks raised high. And that's why they don't eat the leaves on the trees. Right. Kelly frowned. But if their long necks aren't used for eating, then why do they evolve them in the first place? Levine smiled. There must be a good reason, he said. I believe it has to do with their defense. Defense? Long necks? Arby said. I don't get it. Keep looking, Levine said. It's really rather obvious. Arby peered through the binoculars. He said to Kelly, I hate it when he tells us it's obvious. I know, she said with a sigh. Arby glanced over at Thorn and caught his eye. Thorn made a V with his fingers and then pushed one finger, tilting it over. The movement forced the second finger to shift too, so the two fingers were connected. If it was a clue, he didn't get it. He didn't get it, he frowned. Thorn mouthed bridge. Arby looked and watched the whip-like tail swinging back and forth over the younger animals. I get it, Arby said. They use their tails for defence, and they need their long necks to counterbalance the long tails. It's like a suspension bridge. Levine squinted at Arby. You did that very fast, he said. Thorn turned away, hiding a smile. But I'm right, Arby said. Yes, Levine said. Your view is essentially correct. Lung necks exist because the lung tails exist. It's a different situation in theropods, which stand on two legs. But in quadrupeds, there needs to be a counterbalance for the lung tail, or the animal would just simply tip over. Malcolm said, uh, uh, Actually, there is uh, something much more puzzling about this apatosaur herd. Oh, Levine said, what's that? There is uh, no true adults, Malcolm said. Those animals we see are very large by our standards. But in fact, none of them are attained full size. I find that perplexing. Do you? It doesn't trouble me in the least, Levine said. Unquestionably, it is simply because they haven't had enough time to reach maturity. I'm sure our pedestals grow more slowly than other dinosaurs. After all, large mammals like elephants grow more slowly than small ones. Malcolm shook his head. Uh, that is not the explanation, he said. Well, then what? Uh, keep looking. Malcolm said, pointing out over the plain. It's, uh, really rather obvious. The kids giggled. 
Levine gave a little shiver of displeasure. And what is obvious to me, he said, is that none of the species appear to have attained full adulthood. The Triceratops, the Apatosaurus, even the Parasaurus are a bit smaller than one would expect. This argues for a consistent factor, some element of diet, the effects of confinement on the small island, perhaps even the way they were engineered. But I don't consider it particularly remarkable or worrisome. Well, maybe you're right, Malcolm said. And then again, maybe you're not. Puerto Cortes. No flights? Sir Harding said. What do you mean there are no flights? It was eleven o'clock in the morning. Harding hadn't been flying for at least fifteen hours. Much of it spent on the US military transport that she'd caught from Nairobi to Dallas. She was exhausted. Her skin felt grimy. She needed a shower and a change of clothes. Instead, she found herself arguing with a very stubborn official in a ratty little town on the west coast of Costa Rica. Outside, the rain had stopped, but the sky was still grey, with low hanging clouds over the deserted airfield. I am sorry, Rodriguez said. No flights can be arranged. But what about the helicopter that took the men earlier? There is a helicopter, yes. Well, where is it? The helicopter is not here. I can see that, but where is it? Rodriguez spread his hand. It has gone to San Cristobal. Well, when will it be back? I do not know. I think tomorrow or perhaps the day after. Senor Rodriguez, she said firmly, I must get to that island today. I understand your wish, Rodriguez said, but I cannot do anything about it to help this. Well, what do you suggest? Rodriguez shrugged. I could not make a suggestion. Is there a boat that will take me? I do not know of a boat. This is a harbour, Harding said. She pointed out the window. I see all sorts of boats out there. I know, but I do not believe one will go to the islands. The weather is not so favourable. But if I was to go down to... Yes, of course, Rodriguez sighed. Of course, you may ask. Which was how she found herself, shortly after eleven o'clock on the rainy morning, walking down a rickety wooden dock with a backpack on her shoulder. Four boats were tied up to the dock, which smelled strongly of fish. But all the boats seemed to be deserted. All the activity was at the far end of the dock, where a much smaller boat was tied up. Beside the boat, a red jeep wrangler was being strapped for loading, along with several large steel drums and wooden crates of supplies. She admired the car in passing. It had been specially modified, enlarged to the size of a Land Rover Defender, the most desirable of all field vehicles, Changing this jeep must have been an expensive alteration, she thought, only for researchers with lots of money. Standing on the dock, a pair of Americans in wide-brimmed sun hats were shouting and pointing as the jeep lifted lopsidedly into the air and was swung onto the deck of the boat with an ancient crane. She heard one of the men shout, Careful! Careful! as the jeep thudded down on the wooden deck. Damn it! Be careful! Several workmen began to carry boxes onto the ship. The crane swung back to pick up the steel drums. Harding went over to the nearest man and said politely, Excuse me, but I wonder if you could help me. The man glanced at her. He was medium height with reddish skin and bland features. He looked awkward in new khaki safari clothes. His manner was preoccupied and tense. I'm busy now, he said and turned away. Manuel, watch it! That's sensitive equipment! Uh, I'm sorry to bother you, she continued, but my name is Sarah Harding and I'm trying... I don't care if you're Sarah Bernard. The Manuel, damn it! The man waved his arms. You there! Yes, you! Hold the box upright! 
I'm trying to get to Isla Sorna, she said, finishing. At this, the man's entire demeanour changed. He turned back to her slowly. Isla Sorna, he said. You're not associated with Dr. Levine by any chance, are you? Yes, I am. Well, I'll be damned, he said, and suddenly breaking into a warm smile. What do you know? He extended his hand. I'm Lou Dawson from the Biosyn Corporation. Back in Cupertino. This is my associate, Howard King. All right, the other man said, nodding. Howard King was younger and taller than Dodgson, and he was handsome in the clean-cut California way. Sarah recognized his type, a classic beta male, subservient to the core. And there was something odd about his behavior towards her. He moved a little away, and seemed uncomfortable around her as Dodgson now seemed friendly. And up there, Dodgson continued, pointing onto the deck, is our third, George Basilton. Harding saw a heavy-set man on the deck, bent over the boxes as they came on board. His shirt sleeves were soaked in sweat. She said, Are you all friends with Richard? We're on our way over to meet him right now, Dodgson said, to help out. He hesitated, frowning at her. But, uh, he didn't tell us about you. She was suddenly aware then of how she must appear to him, a short woman in her thirties, wearing a rumpled shirt, khaki shorts and heavy boots, her clothes dirty, her hair unkept, after all the flights. She said, Well, I know Richard through Ian Malcolm. Ian and I are old friends. I see, he continued to stare at her, as if he was unsure of her in some way. She felt compelled to explain. I, I've uh, been in Africa. I decided to come here at the last minute, she said. Doc Thorne called me. Oh, of course. Doc. The man nodded and seemed to relax, as if everything now seemed to make more sense to him. She said, Is Richard all right? Well, I certainly hope so, because we're taking all this equipment to him. You're uh, going to Sorna now? We are, if this weather holds up, Dodgson said, glancing at the sky. We should be ready to go in five or ten minutes. You know, you're welcome to join us, if you if you if you need a ride, he said cheerfully. We well, could use the company. Where's your stuff? Well, I've only got this, she said, lifting her small backpack. Travelling light, huh? Well, good, Miss Harding. Welcome to the party. He seemed entirely open and friendly now. It was such a marked change from his earlier behaviour, but she noticed that the handsome man, King, remained distinctly uneasy, and turned his back to her and acted very busy, shouting at the workmen to be careful with the last of the wooden crates, which were marked Biasing Corporation in stenciled lettering. She had the impression he was avoiding looking at her, and she still hadn't got a good look at the third man on deck. It made her hesitate. Are you sure it's all right? Oh, of course it's all right. We'd be delighted, Dodgson said. Besides, how are she going to get there? There's no planes. The helicopter's gone. I know. I checked. Well then, you know, if you want to get to the island, you'd better go with us. She looked at the jeep on the boat and said, I think Doc must already be there with his equipment. At the mention of that, the second man, King, snapped his head round in alarm. But Dodgson just nodded calmly and said, Yeah, I think so. He left last night, I believe. Well, that's what he said to me. Right, Dodgson nodded. So he's already there, at least. I, I hope he is. From the deck, there was a shout in Spanish, and a captain in greasy overalls came and looked over the side. Senor Dodgson, we are ready. Good, Dodgson said. Excellent. Climb aboard, Miss Harding. Let's get going. King Spewing black smoke, the fishing boat chugged out of the harbour, heading toward the open sea. Howard King felt the rumble of the ship's engines beneath his feet. 
heard the creak in the wood. He listened to the shouts of the crewmen in Spanish. King looked back at the little town of Puerto Cortes. A jumble of little houses cluttered around the water's edge. He hoped this damn boat was seaworthy, because we were out in the middle of nowhere. And Dodgson was cutting corners, taking chances again. It was a situation King feared most. Howard King had known Lewis Dodgson for almost ten years, ever since he had joined Biasin as a young Berkeley PhD, a promising researcher with the energy to conquer the world. King had done his doctoral thesis on blood coagulation factors. He had joined Biasin at the time of intense interest in those factors, which seemed to hold the key to dissolving clots in patients with heart attacks. There was a race among biotech companies to develop a new drug that would save lives, and make a fortune as well. Initially, King worked on a promising substance called hemagglutin V5, or HGV5. In early tests, it dissolved platelet aggregation to an astonishing degree. King became the most promising young researcher at Biasin. His picture was prominently featured in the annual report. He had his own lab, and an operating budget of nearly half a million dollars. And then, without warning, the bottom fell out. In preliminary tests on human subjects, HGV5 failed to dissolve clots in either myocardial infarctions or pulmonary embolisms. Worse, it produced severe side effects, gastrointestinal bleeding, skin rashes, neurological problems. After one patient died from convulsions, the company halted further testing. Within weeks, King lost his lab. A newly arrived Danish researcher took it over. He was developing an extract of the saliva of the Sumatran yellow leech, which showed more promise. King moved to a smaller lab, decided he was tired of blood factors, and turned his attention to painkillers. He had an interesting compound, the L-isomer of the protein from the African horny toad, which seemed to have a narcotic effect. But he had lost his former confidence, and when the company reviewed his work, they concluded that the research was insufficiently documented to warrant seeking FDA approval for testing. His horny toad project was summarily cancelled. King was M35 and twice a failure. His picture no longer graced the annual reports. It was rumoured that the company would probably let him go at the next review period. When he proposed a new research project, it was rejected at once. It was a dark time in his life. And then Lewis Dodgson suggested they had lunch. Dodgson had an unsavoury reputation among the researchers. He was known as the Undertaker, because of the way he took over the work of others, and printed it up as his own. In early years, King would never have been seen with him. But now he allowed Dodgson to take him to an expensive seafood restaurant in San Francisco. Research is hard, Dodgson said sympathetically. You can say that again, King said. Hard and risky. Dodgson said. The fact is, innovative research really pans out. Does management understand? No. If the research fails, you're the one who's blamed. It's not fair. Tell me, King said. But that's the name of the game, Dodgson shrugged, and sped a leg of soft-shell crab. King said nothing. Personally, I don't like risk, Dodgson continued. The original work is risky. Most new ideas are bad, and most original work fails. That's the reality. If you feel compelled to do original research, you can expect to fail. That's okay if you work in a university, where uh, failure is praised and success leads to ostracism. But in industry, no, no, no. Original work in industry is not a wise career choice. It's only going to get you into trouble. Which is where you are right now, my friend. 
What can I do? King said. Well, Dorshan said, I have my own version of a scientific method. I call it focused research development. If only a few ideas are going to be good, why try to find them yourselves? It's too hard. If other people find them, let them take the risk. Let them go for the so-called glory. I'd rather wait and develop the ideas that already show promise. Take what's good and make it better. Or at least make it different enough so that I can patent it. And then I own it. Then it's mine. King was amazed at the straightforward way Dodgson admitted he was a thief. He didn't seem in the least embarrassed. King poked at his salad for a while. Well, why, why are you telling me this? Because I see something in you, Dodgson said. I see ambition, frustrated ambition, and I'm telling you, Howard, you don't have to be frustrated. You don't even have to be fired from the company at the next performance review, which is exactly what's going to happen. How old is your kid? Four, King said. Terrible to be out of work with a young family. It won't be easy getting another job. Who's going to give you a chance now? By 35, a research scientist has already made his mark, or he's not likely to. I don't say that's right, but that's how they think. King knew that's how they thought at every biotechnology company in California. But Howard, Dodgson said, leaning across the table, lowering in his voice, a wonderful world awaits you. If you choose to look at things differently, there's a whole other way to live your life. I really think you should consider what I'm saying. Two weeks later, King became Dodgson's personal assistant in the Department of Future Biogenic Trends, which is how Biosyn referred to his efforts of industrial espionage. And in the years that followed, King had once again risen swiftly at Biosyn, this time because Dodgson liked him. Now King had all the accoutrements of success, a Porsche, a mortgage, a divorce, a kid he saw on the weekends, all because King had proven to be the perfect second in command, working long hours, handling the details, keeping his fast-talking boss out of trouble. And in the process, King had come to know all the sides of Dodgson, his charismatic side, his visionary side, and his dark, ruthless side. King told himself that he could handle the ruthless side, that he could keep it in check, that over the years he had learned how to do that. But sometimes he was not so sure. Like now. Because here they were in some rickety, stinking fishing boat, heading out into the ocean of some desolate village in Costa Rica, and in his tense moment, Dodgson had suddenly decided to play some kind of game, meeting this woman and deciding to take her along. King didn't know what Dodgson intended, but he could see the intense gleam in Dodgson's eyes that he had seen only a few times before, and it was a look that always alarmed him. The woman Harding was now up on the foredeck, standing near the bow. She was looking off at the ocean. King saw Dodgson walking around the jeep and beckoned to him nervously. Listen, King said, we have to talk. Sure, Dodgson said easily. What's on your mind? And he smiled that charming smile.